This episode of Live from CapTime's IdeaFest is sponsored by Exact Sciences. Learn more about Exact Sciences' mission to beat cancer through early detection at exactsciences.com. Hello, and welcome to Live from CapTime's IdeaFest. With the holidays upon us, we're bringing you even more conversations from this year's CapTime's IdeaFest, an event that took place in September at the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. On today's episode, a conversation about Wisconsin's environment and communities of color. Wisconsin is a state proud of its natural resources, but the way that its residents access or engage with the environment is by no means equal. At the fest, the freelance journalist and author James Edward Mills led a series of presentations by three panelists on the relationships that communities of color have with the environment, from the way they grapple with climate change and sustainability to their histories of agriculture, hunting, and environmental stewardship. All right, I'll let James take things from here. I hope you enjoy the talk. Um, I'm really excited about this discussion um, about the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in the management of our public land. And in the spirit of that, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge those who came before us. Um, here at the University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison campus, um, we're on the ancestral home of several Native American tribes, including the Ho-Chunk Nation. As the first people to occupy this land um, for, over, for hundreds of years, um, we owe these people a great debt of gratitude for being the original stewards of this wonderful place that we now call home, so thank you. Um, as was mentioned, I'm James Edward Mills. I'm a freelance journalist and independent media producer based here in Madison. Um, and I'm also an adjunct faculty member at the uh, UW-Madison Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies. And there I teach a summer course called Outdoors for All. And in a <laughs> shameless plug, um, I'd like to invite anyone who's interested or inclined to join me in May of 2019. Um, I'm leading a four-week study on many of the topics that we're going to be um, discussing here today. Now, it's my pleasure to moderate um, this panel, which we've entitled um, Wisconsin's, um, in, um, Wisconsin's Environment and Communities of Color. And I'm very happy to bring together three wonderful leaders in our state um, who have devoted much of their professional lives to the study and advocacy of the role that people of color have and always have played in the protection and the preservation of nature. And I'll introduce um, each of them to you um, in a moment. Um, but I want to make sure that we, um, we know the format for the day. We'll take about 10 minutes for each of us to um, tell you a little bit about our work. Um, and then I will ask several prepared questions. And at the end, um, we'll take the time to take your questions from the audience. Um, now, as for myself, um, by way of introduction and to give you a better idea as to um, the work that I do, um, as a journalist, um, I specialize in telling stories about outdoor recreation, environmental conservation, and acts of charitable giving. And one of the things that is most profound to me is the relationship that um, we have with our natural world. And um, most recently, um, I, I had written a book in 2014 called The Adventure Gap, Changing the Face of the Outdoors. And in that story, I tell the long narrative of the role that African Americans in particular have played in the preservation of our wild and scenic places. And in that um, research, I discovered that there is indeed a divide between those who spend time in nature and those who don't. Um, and, it's, and it became most profound to me on um, a recent trip through the Grand Canyon. Um, last, just last month, I had the privilege of um, paddling a, a whitewater raft from the, um, from one end of the Grand Canyon to the other, distance of over 226 miles. And in that time, um, I was the only person of color that I saw. And when we stop and we think about what that ultimately means, um, basically what I try to do is to work to explore the, um, the, the divides that create these uh, differences in terms of who spends time in nature. And the um, subject of that was my book, The Adventure Gap. 
Now, when we stop and we think about what it means to define a, a, an adventure gap, as I've described it in my book, the first thing that we have to understand is that African Americans currently represent 12% of the U.S. population, um, but we actually only represent 1% of national park visitors. In fact, in many areas, it's quite a bit less than that. Now, if we stop and we think about the demographic information that's revealed in census data, um, from the year 2000 to the year 2014, um, the nation's black population grew 35% faster than the population as a whole. And looking forward, currently at 45.7 million um, to 74.5 million, making up 17.9% um, of the U.S. population by the year 2060. So the demographic of, of African Americans and many people of color in this country are actually <laughs> shifting. Um, and by the year 2040, it's, it's estimated that a majority of the population will be non-white. So the question is, what happens if nothing changes to adjust how we think about who spends time in nature? Um, if indeed things re, um, remain the way that they are, um, our national parks especially will experience what I've described as an adventure gap so that we have fewer people ultimately as a broad percentage of the population that will actually take care of our natural environment. But here in Wisconsin, um, those statistics are every bit as profound. And when we stop and we think about who it is that um, is part of our population, um, a very high percentage of that population re remains to be white, but 6.3% of the population is African American. Um, a very similar um, segment of the population is Latino. These numbers are rising. And as these numbers rise, the question is, what can we do to instill in these emerging populations the ability to have a profound experience and appreciation for nature? And fortunately, there are several institutions that are working to, um, to correct this, and I have the privilege of sitting on the boards of two of them. Um, the first is the, um, the Ice Age Trail Alliance. Um, the, out, uh, the outside, the... the um, the Ice Age Trail um, is one of 11 national scenic trails in the country, and we're fortunate enough to have one of them right here in the state of Wisconsin. But it's currently occupied, um, managed exclusively by volunteers. And a very low percentage of that um, population that protects this trail are indeed people of color. And if we can stop and we can um, and hopefully invite and encourage um, a new generation of people to come to become involved in um, the work of the Alliance, we have a, a tremendous opportunity to make some changes. And um, through my help and the work of people on our board, we actually um, created a statement of inclusion um, that actually embeds diversity, equity, and inclusion in our mission statement. I'll read it as follows. The Alliance acknowledges that in order to be truly diverse and inclusive organization, we must exercise commitment to these goals in the way that we do business and how we interact with one another, our external partners, and the general public. In support of the mission of the Alliance, we are committed to recruiting, engaging, supporting, and cultivating leadership throughout all communities we aim to serve. And it basically begins with points of engagement. If we can do that on the state level, we can also do it on the local level. I also sit on the board of the Aldo Leopold um, Nature Center here in Monona. And um, in much the same way, that institution has adopted um, a... Uh, a statement of inclusion as well that reads in its beginning, we believe that diverse communities are healthier in nature and in society. And we are, and when we are thoughtful about um, being inclusive in how we engage, educate, and empower, we help our community to know that nature is for everyone and is a safe place to learn and explore. So if we actually are as conscientious about protecting the environment as we are about the uh, populations that we engage, we actually have the ability to protect and preserve our wild and scenic um, places um, for many years and hopefully even generations to come. And through the course of our conversation today, we're going to explore um, several different aspects of how we can engage these um, new and emerging populations to um, embrace and hopefully enjoy the outdoors as we know it today. Um, and with that, I'd like to introduce the first of our panelists, um, Gloria Castilla-Pasada, is um, uh, the Sustainable Communities Initiative Director at Sustain Dane, um, a uh, nonprofit dedicated to um, making Dane, Con Dane County environmentally sustainable. Gloria Castilla leads community outreach efforts. And without any further ado, Ms. Castillo. Sure, 
Hello, everybody. Buenos días a todos. Uh, my name is Gloria Castillo. I'm super excited to be here. Um, thank you so much for the invitation to James, and I'm super excited to share this panel with Monica and Dylan. And I know we're going to have uh, a great conversation, and I hope um, we can also invite you to, to have this conversation together. Um, so as James say, I'm Gloria Castillo. I'm originally from Colombia, from Bogota. Uh, I've been living here in the U.S. for the past seven years, and my background is in ecology. And um, after a long um, journey, I decided to move a little bit from pure science to go to the social science. So my approach now is uh, working with communities in terms of sustainability and environment, but bringing to the table an intersectional lens um, that is definitely colored by my experience, my lived experience here as an immigrant, but also as a person, um, as a woman that you know brings with her all her experiences and who she is, right? So. Um, I'm an alumni here from the UW Madison. I have my master's degree from here, the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies on Environment and Resources, and also a master's um, degree in Women and Gender Studies. So that's how I combine uh, both my professional training, but also who I am and what I care about. Um, so as James said, I'm also the Sustainable uh, Communities Coordinator, Director at Sustain Dane. Um, the sustainability um, organization in Den County. And as I'd like to call myself, I'm also a luchadora and optimista. So that's how I want to start uh, this conversation. Um, a little bit of me, I grew up in Colombia, in, in Bogota, which is a 10 million uh, big population city, which is huge <laughs> when we see, you know, um, Madison and other um, smaller. Uh, cities, but definitely when you grow up in a country that is so rich in biodiversity, you can but go outside and enjoy nature. Uh, we are the uh, number one country in terms of biodiversity in birds, and fourth in uh, frogs, and third in mammals in the world. So you can imagine we are um, fortunate to be a very rich country in terms of biodiversity, but also in terms of like, cultural diversity too. So our communities are also, um, we are a pretty rural uh, country too, based on agriculture, uh, but also moving little by little to the cities, just like what is happening around the world. Um, so one of the, the things that really inspires my work is um, the complexity and a little bit of the contradictions when you live um, in a country that is so biodiverse and so rich, but at the same time so um, full of inequalities and also poverty. So you wonder, why is this happening? Why did you see uh, people suffering, people having less than you know, a dollar to live uh, in a country where you have abundance of food and abundance of land and abundance of uh, richness. So I, I grew up with that uh, constant questions and um, that has guided my work today to try to understand how we can provide solutions and provide and bring people along to understanding to um, help better those conditions. And even when we come here to the U.S., we also see similar circumstances when we see a lot of wealth, but a lot of communities of color um, subjected to uh, poverty and other uh, difficult situations. So um, that's still the question that is guiding my work and um, that sometimes I'd like to start the conversation with just to have a framework. Um, let's see here. Um, so there are a lot of things happening um, at the local and national level, and I want to provide some of that uh, in context for you. So here in Madison, we have been working pretty hard on sustainability and storytelling. And some of you wonder why storytelling is such an important part of the sustainability movement. And one of the reasons that um, we believe this is a key component as we move forward with environmental um, solutions to our current challenges is that many times we consider that people of color don't care about the environment. We just don't see them outside, as um, James was saying, you know, 
1% of the people are outside, so you will say, well, you know, what's going on? Maybe just, you know, they don't care as much. But we, what we know is that people of color care a lot about the environment and about policies, about climate change. So what we want to bring is those stories back to the back at the center of this uh, sustainability movement. And uh, the way that we want to say is that people of color should tell their stories in their own words. We don't want some others saying, this is who you are and this is why you care, don't care. We want people to say, this is my story and this is why I care, and this is why I've been caring for decades and generations and generations. We know that uh, especially Latinos and their relationship with the environment goes back to our um, ancestors that have worked the land. And a lot of them have come to this country as immigrants working uh, in the farms. So there is a connection there, both in terms of the work that they do, but also the values that they bring with them. Um, so, so the storytelling is, is, a, is a very crucial part because it's just not about telling my story, but how those stories should be shaping the policies and the way we see the city and the way we see our rural communities here too. Um, another part that is very important here, especially in Wisconsin, is how do we bring more people, how do we engage most, uh, more, of, more, more of them um, in a way that really or truly shape the policies in our cities and in, in the communities around us. So last year, with the city of Madison, I don't know if you are familiar, we did some of the uh, Imagine Madison process. And one of, the process, uh, one of the important key elements in this process was let's bring uh, communities of color to tell us how do they experience the city. What is it that we're missing by not, by not bringing those voices to the table? So we uh, worked with Ho-Chunk uh, back in that time and had different meetings and also other uh, communities of color were present there to tell us, well, how is it, is it the way that Madison is being told, is this the way, the same way that you have been experiencing the city? And what we saw is that there is a gap between that experience and that narrative that we currently hear. So by bringing those people to the table, we have been able to shape some of the ways that we experience the city, like transportation. We need more access to that. We need more access to food security, and not just food security, but food sovereignty too. And um, and we also need uh, more access to uh, fair housing and accessible housing. So there were so many issues that came out of that process by just bringing people to the table that seems a little bit like obvious, but hasn't been happened. And this was actually the first process where that uh, was um, part of the process. So we also do a lot of uh, education. We bring people together. One of our big issues is to connect. Because once you are exposed to what um, these different stories meant to people, then you, your world opens more to that. So now I want to talk a little bit about what, what we have been doing, especially with this organization, Green Latinos, at the national level. So some of the key elements that we talk about and we work um, in the Capitol Hill is things uh, related to climate change, immigration, um, the National Environment Protection Act, also called as NEPA, clean air and clean water. Um, so one of the things that uh, so many people ask is like, well, so how do we relate to the outdoors? And, um, this uh, this was a poll that was created in 2012, I think, um, 2012, 2016. And what we see is that Latinos care, not just a little bit, but they care a lot about the outdoors. Um, with like two numbers, like 62% to 59. So most of the Latinos are currently and constantly using uh, their outdoors, not just to being outside, but also because it creates a sense of belonging, a sense of community. And that might mean hiking or fishing or doing outdoors activities, but also it means eating outside, having our carnes asadas, having our parties or our piñatas. So um, that's how we are um, experiencing our sense of community and sense of home through the outdoors. Um, however, that is always... Um, somehow limited by the way that other people 
are also allows to be there. So there is an issue in access to the outdoors, but it, that is also an issue of like how much I feel like I belong to that place, which is a very important uh, part of the Latino experience here in, in, in our country. Um, this other map shows that um, it's not just an issue of exploring or being outside, but what is our moral responsibility to take care of the outdoors? And as you see in this graph, 90%, um, more than 90% of uh, Latino communities in the, in the US believe that we have a great responsibility to take care of the, to protect the, the earth. And this is huge. This is huge because when we see um, how, how we create our policies, how do we bring to the table, who are um, representing us, who are uh, being educated in those issues. Maybe we don't see as many Latinos as we would like to, although we know that they strongly believe that this is a moral issue for all of us. Um, Something very interesting about this is like we see, for example, that environment goes really very close to actually immigration, which is a huge deal for us right now, and it has been for many decades, but right now being one of the top priorities. And we see that both economy, education, healthcare, and immigration are top four, but top five is uh, the environment, which is also telling us a lot about who we care, what we care about and how we move forward with this. And, between, and when we talk about environment, what do we actually say? And is pollution and climate change two of the, the topics that are more concerning to us? And you wonder why? Well, let's look at Puerto Rico, for example. What is happening there? We are one of the most affected by climate change. Some of our um, brothers and sisters from Puerto Rico are now climate uh, refugees here. So because people of color and Latinos are being disproportionately affected by these issues, uh, being also close to uh, pollutants, to plants, to rivers that are uh, duty, so that's one of why these are one of the top priorities for us right now. Um, we also saw that in this poll that was created by um, New York Times and um, Stanford University, that is when you compare uh, our, our white population to Hispanics, actually Hispanics by this poll care more than whites about, glam, uh, about um, global warming. That also tells us a lot of what is going on. Like when we see also the data uh, environmental organizations don't consult with Latino communities about what's going on when we see that. And so, like, what, why, I guess, is the question. Why do we see this gap there? Why do we, um, why we don't have those people at the table? What is happening? Is this an issue in environmental justice? So this is also a very interesting thing about our political spectrum right now. Some people might say, well, the, the Paris Agreement is one of the benchmarks that we keep talking about, which is very important because what is one of the international agreements that, um, that bind us to some sort of commitment to reduce our, um, our pollutants to the earth and some other um, important metrics and measurements that we need to uh, agree to in the, for the next years. And what we see is that uh, Latinos believe that at least 70% of Latinos believe that this is a very important issue. So, and then when you see here uh, Trump believers, at least, um, I want to see, 75% of the Latinos that support Trump think that he should comply with the Paris Agreement. So it doesn't really matter uh, where in the political spectrum you fall to, you still believe this is a crucial issue. And that goes back to the moral responsibility that we have with the air and the story that we want to tell about what we care about and, and, and why we care about that. Um, so one important issue that I want to bring here today to the conversation is immigration. Um, 
I'm an immigrant, so this is definitely something that I care about. And I have, I'm being very fortunate to have my citizenship, but I know that many of my brothers and sisters don't have the same uh, privilege right now. So you will wonder why is immigration even important? Why is immigration even part of the conversation? And I'm going to give you just three reasons, even though there are more reasons why we care about. But the first thing is like the DREAM Act. So we have a um, beautiful group of young people that have come to the country, have contributed to the fabric of who we are, have redefined and reshaped who we are today. And they are now in danger of being deported for, the, for different reasons. Um, they have the right to stay here, and not just to stay here, but to defend their communities to be safe, to be in a community that is healthy, that is protected, that they have a voice to say, this is the community we want to stay in, this is the community we want to defend. The other reason is that some of those dreamers, many of those maybe have been um, put in a narrative of criminals, but the reality is that these dreamers are also uh, luchadores, they're also people that are studying, that have jobs, that are uh, contributing to our society in many different ways. And many of those have also contributed to environmental movements. So can you imagine the loss that we will have once they are removed to, from this society, from who we are, from our communities? Um, not to say anything about separation of families that we have you know, witnessed in the past months uh, is a terrible loss for all of us, but we know the human cause is unprecedented. We know that the families that have been separated are going through incredible trauma that will be very difficult to, to restore. So we know that the issue of environmental, we can't separate environmental issues from social issues. I am a woman, I'm a woman of color, I'm a Latina, but I happen to like clean water, and I happen to like to breathe clean, uh, clean air. So I can't separate who I am from these issues the same way that we can't say, oh, these families, this is not about us. We care about just the environment. We care about just the, uh, the endangered species, which is very important, but we need to care about our communities, our families, our children too. And lastly, we know that the border wall um, has been taking a lot of oh, part of the debate today. And uh, why do we care about that? Well, mainly because, again, those are separating. Um, the wall is a symbol, but also a very concrete symbol of who belongs here and who doesn't belong. Um, and we don't want to create that. We want to make sure that we are bridging wall, uh, bridging. Um, Bridges and creating bridges instead of building walls. And we know that the money that is being divested to create this wall can be put into other hands and to um, build the society that we want to be part of. And just to say, lastly, that um, definitely as an environmentalist, environmentalist uh, we also care about um, our our uh, Mother Earth, and we know that the border will separate uh, crucial ecosystems, crucial landscapes, will contaminate water, will contaminate our, our, our water bodies, will contaminate, um, will not allow uh, different species to, to pass from one way to another because, you know, when the Earth is created, uh, there wasn't walls there there was like freedom to move around. So this is definitely something that doesn't allow for that and is just uh, making it worse. So one of the questions is like, so what do we do, right? And we know that there are so many organizations working right now in, in, in bringing to the front for these this issues. And um, our first homework is to learn more about them. What are they doing? What do they care about? Uh, where are they even located? What communities do they represent? What are the things that they care about? Uh, we are all about the country. We are very um, key in the advocacy that we're doing in all these issues that we have been, that I just covered, but many more. So if you feel compelled to do your homework and learn more about us, please check some of these organizations and support them, because 
you know, they are working at the local level, they know the communities, they know the issues that um, they care about, and our job is to learn from them and to let them guide uh, the path to to the goals that we that we have. So that's for today. Thank you so much for your time. Gloria, thank you very much. Um, our next presenter um, is Dylan Jennings, and um, his uh, tribal name is actually Bisging. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Not even close. <laughs> but um, but I, I uh, should take this moment to introduce him um, as um, um, he is the Director of Public Information of the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. Um, in addition to his work at the commission, um, he, which manages treaty-protected natural resources, uh, Dylan is the uh, tribal council member of the Bad River um, um, Band and Lake Superior Ojibwe. Um, without any further ado, Bazing. Again, probably mispronouncing. Anin and Dinway Mogani Dog, Nijigakina, Ninsa, Bijakins, Indigena Kaz, Wabashashi, and Dodem Mashkazibin and Dunjaba, Mguchwe Aonanik, a Gyu, a Kinagogino, a Gapi, Jayagoma, so Nongum, the Gunawena Maur, a Kina, a Kina, Oasia, Nigae, Benesia, Nigae, Guyag, Minua, Dash to go, Ingi Piminigana, Sema, the Gapi, Jayagoma, so Nongum, Minua, Dash to go, and Yujaganashi, Majanins. So in our beautiful descriptive language in Ojibwe, I just said uh, somebody's parked out in the fire lane outside. We need, <laughs> need you to move your car immediately. <laughs> and this, uh, I'm just kidding. So uh, in, our, in our language, my name is Bija Keens. Um The IRS knows me as Dylan Jennings. You know, I come here from Bad River, Wisconsin. You know, in our language, Bija Keens refers to... Uh, that young buffalo, young buffalo is, is the name that was given to me through ceremony. And uh, I was joking earlier, you know, I said that, you know, most people don't know what that means in language, so I'll just tell people it means big, strong, burly buffalo, you know, not, not, not young buffalo. But um, as our, our relative spoke earlier, I come from Bad River, Wisconsin. I work for Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission, an organization that was uh, that was that began, you know, 30 some years ago to help protect and implement treaty protected rights and resources that go along with that. Um, I also wear another hat in my community. I'm an elected tribal council member for my nation, the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe. Is anybody familiar with Bad River? Can I get a woo woo? Right. <laughs> Miigwech, thank you for that. Bad River, located up in northern Wisconsin, is 125,000 square acres of land in northern, right on the south shores of Lake Superior, or Gichigumi, we call that in our language. And uh, we, we take, we take that, that land that we have and we protect it as much as we possibly can. We have over 8,000 tribal members that we serve on our tribal government. There are seven of us. And so I'm honored to be one of those seven that uh, helps to make some of the decisions about our community for the, for the next generations to come, for our children, for our babies, our grandbabies. It's a very big honor and responsibility, and I think all of us take it, you know, without, we don't take it very lightly, in other words. And so I'm very humbled and honored to come here and, and uh, talk a little bit about the environment, because our, our people in general, we're really, we're really proud people and we're really proud of everything that we have done to protect the environment. And so there's a couple of brief, uh, brief slides that I have here. So when we talk about the environment and we talk about you know, treaties in general, everyone understands treaties as a, as a relationship, right? As a, as a way to, uh, to starting a relationship, as a way to understanding each other. On the base level, it's an agreement, right? When we talk about treaties, a lot of people are first, uh, the, the first when they first think about treaties, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is treaties with the federal government. Well, as Anishinaabe people, we acknowledge the first treaties for us are the first treaties are the, are the treaties with creation that we have. And we're always talking about the environment, and the environment is directly ingrained and intertwined with our way of life. And that's true for a lot of communities and a lot of people that, that understand that. And so we say in our language, Anishinaabe and Akoni Gewin, that's how we, that's how we describe that. Our traditional law, our traditional way of thinking. You look at that, the first treaties are between us 
and all the orders of creation. And so what that means is within our own creation story, embedded within that, there's, there's the different orders of creation that stand up for us as Anishinaabe. You get the Wawashkeshi, the Akinawesiag, all the animals that stood up for us and said, you know, we'll take care of you as long as you remember us. And so within our, within our own stories, that's part of that, that environmental aspect is, is part of who we are. And so it's a relationship of reciprocity that's ingrained in all of us, right? We know that we're always, we're always out there harvesting and taking care of the environment, but we always acknowledge of what, you know, what it does for us. It takes care of us, and it's that continual circle that we, that we follow. And so, again, when I talked about the 1800s, after that is more characterized by treaty signing between us and the federal government. We enter into a lot of treaties. This is just meant to give you kind of a historical synopsis of what, what's happened. And um, 1800s really characterized as, you know, a time of uneven tables, right, signing these treaties with the federal government. But it, is, it also marks a time where our people, our tribal leaders at that time, had the foresight to enter into these agreements. Because if you look at the 1800s and what federal Indian policy at that time entailed, a lot of it, a lot of it surrounded removal, right? Many tribes, especially starting in the, in the southern part of the, the country, are being forcibly removed from their homelands. And that's a, big, that's a big, big issue for a lot of these communities that have developed you know, uh, TEK, traditional ecological knowledge and a way of living that, that goes hand in hand with these lands that you, you come from. And so our leaders in northern Wisconsin and the northern, northern ceded territory ceded large expanses of land to the federal government in return for things what we call usufructory rights, the ability to hunt, fish, and harvest on those lands that have been ceded, right? And so... History is oftentimes colonized, right? I, I know this from, from being in, you know, the Wisconsin school system, you know, as a, as a younger person. I know a lot of people have dealt with this. We don't always address the, right, the, the correct or the true history in, in classes. Things are changing, don't get me wrong. They're, they're starting to educate our young people in the state and in, within this region about, you know, some of the things that have happened. But we don't always tell the, the true story about what happens. There's a period of time where Anishinaabe and Native American people are out, their, their ceremonial and spiritual ties are outlaw, outlawed for a long time, right? There's almost a hundred years in between that time, 1884, where pagan ceremonies are outlawed. And what that means to us is that in our way of life, we're not allowed to practice our ceremonies, we're not allowed to practice anything that makes us who we are. Because everything is so intertwined, right, from the harvesting to the spiritual beliefs, to the connectivity, it's almost like you're told you can't be Native American, you can't be Anishinaabe. And so that's a really, it's a really detrimental time that really affects our people. So at that, another, another, at another juncture in our, in our time period here, and it is Anishinaabe, um, we talk about you know, these treaties that are entered into, and we're also talking about a point in time when statehood, you know, becomes, becomes prevalent in the area, right? So as Anishinaabe, we might live seasonal lifestyles, but at one point in time, we didn't recognize borders the way that, you know, the states came in and said, well, this is Wisconsin, and this is Michigan, this is Minnesota. To us, to our people, you know, over there was where we, we harvested, you know, did our Eskiga Mizigewin, our sugar bush camp. Over there is where we had our hunting camps. Over here, you know, is where we harvest berries. You know, we acknowledge, we acknowledge where our neighbors and, and, our, um, and, our, and our resources are, but we don't, you know, we don't exactly acknowledge, you know, the boundaries that are put in place like that. And so that's an interesting thing to understand is that dynamic. To this day, many of our tribal communities, you know, will make sure that people understand that even though there's state boundaries put up, we need to kind of decolonize and understand that this whole region, you know, is, is very important and sacred to us. And so at that point in time, our people enter into treaties. And then within, you know, a few years after signing those treaties, you know, as states begin to take off, especially here in Wisconsin, um, a lot of our tribal members are beginning to leave the reservations that, that were established in some of these treaties and harvest within the ceded territory, right? They were guaranteed these usufructory rights by the United States federal government. Well, as they begin to harvest, more and more people, more and more tribal people are beginning to, uh, are beginning to receive fines. 
be thrown in jail. All these different things happen at this point in time. And so, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our Anishinaabe communities are really confused at this point in time, right? It's kind of like you sign an agreement and you're like, sounds good, you know, you cede all this land and then all of a sudden, a few years later, you're, you're being arrested for doing the very thing that you thought you had agreed to. And so we end up with this really ugly period of time where the states step in and they start saying, you guys are, you know, under state jurisdiction, you have to abide by, you know, these state conservation laws and whatnot. And so that, that's a really ugly time in our history. And like I said, there's no separation from our harvesting and spiritual practices. And so moving forward, anybody know who those two guys are? No? Those are um, the Tribble Brothers from northern Wisconsin. They come from the, the um, Lakutere Odawa Zaigening community. Two, uh, two remarkable, remarkable gentlemen. And so at, at one point in time, you know, you start to, uh, you start to see a, a shift in the winds as far as our, our people and our history is concerned. You know, this, this, uh, this period of oppression begins to, to turn around and people begin to, our Anishinaabe people begin to say, you know what, we've had enough of this, we've entered into these treaties, we held up our end of this deal, you know, you know what? we need to bring this to the court systems. And so we, we begin to see this period of time in the you know, kind of mid-1900s where tribal communities are beginning to push this on the court level and they're becoming successful at it. 1974, the Tribble Brothers in Wisconsin decide to test, to test the treaty rights in Wisconsin and eventually with the Voigt decision in 1983, or they call it the LCO decision in the Seventh Circuit, they were successful. The judge rules that yes, the tribes entered into these agreements. As a tribe, a tribe is a nation. You know, the, the United States entered into this, entered into these agreements, acknowledging that yes, tribes are nations. They understand, you know, the the agreements that were made, and this is what's going to happen. Tribes have that ability to uh, to integrate and to uh, to co-manage with the state. And so we end up with this really interesting period of time here in the you know, mid-1900s where things like Glyphwick are, are formed and, and other, other treaty organizations to help manage and uh, implement treaty rights. And then in 1978, finally, American Indian Religious Freedom Act, right? I don't know why it took so long, but there you go. And then in 1999, Mille Lacs in Minnesota, that's another case. So moving forward, Glyphwick helps with uh, co-management with the state, right? So within the ceded territory, if you're talking about, um, you know, fish populations, deer population management, all of those things, uh, Glyphwick and our biologists and our, our team that we have um, helps and works with the state, you know, collaborates on, on ways forward to help manage the resource. And I always say it's such a weird thing to say manage the resource because in our language, there really is no way to even say or talk about that because it's really, you know, it's really kind of a funny concept, right? Because we don't manage. We like to think that we manage things and we like to stick things in categories and organize things when it's really the resources and the things out there that take care of us. And we always need to remind each other of that, right? That we're, we're the insignificant things on this earth, right? And the world would be perfectly fine without us, but vice versa, we, we wouldn't be able to survive. And so... At this point in time, um, you know, Glyphwick has over 35 years of biological data that we, that we hold on to and help, um, help to make um, informed decisions about the environment to help our communities and to help the, the broad, broader, broader public and other, other harvesters. We have enforcement capacity and we, we help implement model codes and regulations to help protect the resources within the ceded territory. And then a lot of ongoing research and studies in, in partnership with different universities regarding resources. So UW-Madison has always been a really great, great partner to Glyphwick and the tribes and Purdue and a bunch of other universities and, and uh, institutions. And so this is something I always like to address and, and ask, ask, wherever I speak, I ask this to ask people to think about this. How does tribal sovereignty and treaty rights affect you, right? Because oftentimes, you know, we put this, again, we categorize something and we put it in a box and we don't really think about what impacts tribal sovereignty, treaty rights have on our own lives, right? We kind of think that's just, a, 
That's just an Indian thing, right? That's a, that has nothing to do, with, to do with me. Well, in our communities, we always say culture is prevention. And if culture is directly tied to the environment, then that's, that's prevention, right? We're talking about things like the drug epidemic and everything that are, you know, that's ravaging our communities. Um, and it's all linked to harvesting. Harvesting is connected to treaty rights. That's one way, you know, everyone's connected to that. Um, but tribal sovereignty is really, if, if you're not familiar with, with how we describe it, you know, I told a class, I, I was up at, over at uh, Madison West High School the other day, and I was like, how do I best describe tribal sovereignty to a bunch of young, young students? And I was like, you know what? Tribal sovereignty, I was like, how many of you guys like Star Wars? So tribal sovereignty is like a lightsaber, right? Or a sword, or like a wand off Harry Potter, right? Tribes, tribes to this day utilize our treaty rights, our sovereignty, to protect everything that's so important to us. We utilize our sovereignty, yield our sovereignty so that others can have clean air, clean water, all of these things that help to help to live us live a good life, right? And so what I mean by that, fish hatcheries, many tribes, you know, as as sovereign nations, as communities contribute over, you know, especially the ones in Wisconsin in this area, contribute somewhere over four hundred million fish back to all the local lakes and rivers and estuaries, right? Four hundred million fish, that's a lot of fish, right? And the last time I checked, fish don't don't decipher between you know, state anglers and tribal anglers, right? <laughs> and so these communities are working hard to stock fish for everybody, right? So that the resources are there and to acknowledge that relationship of reciprocity. Regulatory and protective authority over ceded territory and traditional areas, right? Um, you know, that's, that's another huge thing. Um, Regardless of what your political viewpoints are, in northern Wisconsin, um, they tried to put a mine over by our community a few years back. This company called GTAC uh, worked really hard and lobbied really hard to put a mine in our community. And our community said Gawin in our language, or Gawisa, we say. In our language, that means pretty much hell no. We're not going to allow you to do that. And so utilizing our sovereignty, our ability to protect these places, within our boundaries, but within the ceded territory is, is huge because we firmly believe that for the lives of everybody that depend upon the resources and depend upon you know, clean, clean resources, that that needed to happen. And so, like I said, our community has a really strong track record of you know, protecting everything that is dear to us and dear to everybody. In addition to that, many tribes have uh, higher and more stringent um, um, uh, clean, clean water, clean water authority. And so that's, that's another really important thing to remember. Many of these communities um, are able to enact through the EPA federal water quality standards that are higher than surrounding areas. And so to make sure that, you know, we're not, we're not, um, you know, we're not polluting what we need to, you know, we need to, we need to protect the water. Clean water is for everybody, right? We don't just do that for ourselves. We acknowledge that everybody drinks water. And so, you know, again, utilizing that sovereignty and that ability, you know, for us as tribal communities to protect everything for everybody. That's what we see our role as. And being on the south shores of Lake Superior, you know, we acknowledge too, one of the last freshwater bodies of, of water, you know, in, arguably in the whole entire world, we need to take good care of that. And we consider ourselves, review ourselves as the protectors of that place for everybody. And so that's about all I had um, for introductions. I want to thank you guys. Miigwech, Biz and Dawiyak, thanks for listening to me. Thank you. And last, but by no means least, my uh, good friend and colleague, um, Monica White. Uh, she's an associate professor, assistant professor at the university. <laughs> Well, you'll get there. Um, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, she works at the University's Department of Community and Environmental Sociology, um, Monica White. Thank you. Okay, that's me. Hi. 
Um, so my comments, uh, black and green, African-American communities and the environment. Um, I always like to start off by saying, this is a picture of my dad on some property that we had uh, near Traverse City, Michigan. And he taught me the importance of not only a relationship to the land, we're born and raised in Detroit, but um, also had, uh, he wanted to make sure that we got outside of what we call the concrete jungle. And so this conversation was something that was instilled in me. Um, the majority of my work, and I'm going to try to keep it short because I want to make sure, and that's an enviable position to follow these two uh, amazing people. Um, so uh, my, my research started um, in Detroit, understanding the urban ag movement and understanding uh, African-Americans who were engaging in agriculture as a strategy of resilience and resistance. And then in order to start today, you do have to do the homework to find out what is the historical relationship to the land. Um, in addition to uh, a project that I'm working on right now with a grad student on black anglers. And so really looking at a contemporary lens of why and how African-Americans do fishing, but also what is the historical context for that. So I always think about the question uh, black, folk, black folk don't do, right? And so as a contrast, I argue it's not that black folk don't do environment, but that we do it in different ways. And so the answer to me is, in what ways do black folk do, right? Um, and so I, I argue that uh, communities are engaging uh, with the earth to rebuild our communities. Um, oftentimes the position starts as a criticism or a deficit model, and I argue that we should be looking at it through an asset-based approach. So living in Detroit, communities are redesigning a city by circumstances and by choice. Um, and so we know that, you know, historically African Americans have grown food. We know that there's no such thing as urban ag being new. We know that. Um, but as a historical analysis, African Americans have had a relationship to the land. Um, and I really concentrate on the ways that African Americans established agricultural cooperatives um, during, after the uh, right to vote. Um, various stages of the middle uh, of the Great Migration led folks to leave the South. And I argue it isn't because they didn't like to grow their own food. It was because of the exploitive and oppressive conditions by which they were forced to do that. Um, and so in the opposition to uh, the migration, there are black folks who established these agricultural cooperatives. Um, and here's a picture of John Hatch, who was um, uh, one of the founding organizations uh, in Mississippi who had an agricultural cooperative. Um, this is Ms. Fannie Lou Hamer, who was also very active in the civil rights movement, but also uh, black agricultural cooperatives where hundreds of families pulled their resources together when you, um, when you would um, register to vote, many sharecroppers and tenant farmers were evicted from the land and were fired. And so uh, Fannie Lou Hamer created, and these cooperatives created a place for folks to um, engage in agriculture, but also to stay in the South, which uh, Mrs. Hamer always says, if you leave the land, you have nothing. Absolutely everything comes from the land. And so my argument is if there's a historical precedent for these kinds of relationships to the environment, what are the current examples do we have? Uh, this is a picture of D-Town Farm. Uh, I'm a past president of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And we have nature walks where children go through the seven acre plot of land and talk about the uh, medicinals, the traditional medicinals and what their uses are. So here students would learn, children would learn about uh, dandelion greens and purslane and the other kinds of strategies that particularly African Americans uh, needed to have as a way of, of healing. So this new exciting project, I'm sitting in Lakeside Cafe and just um, because I'm writing and I would rather be out with farmers and other folks and not just sort of isolated and I just keep seeing African Americans walking across Lakeside and I'm like well where are they going? What are they doing? And they have these, you know, contraptions of fishing. And so we started this process on understanding black um, shore fishers uh, with my student Adam Talkington. And the cool thing about it is that there's a historical trajectory for why black folk fish. Right, and so this is a picture of shad fishers in uh, April 20th, 1915. Here you see women also engaged in it. Um, but not only did they do it as a source of protein, they did it as a source of funding, often using the fish to sell, to buy their freedom, but also knowledge of the waterways was required to understand the, the, to lead to freedom through the Underground Railroad. And so if we understand the importance of fishing today, we can look at this trajectory and argue that fishing has been a part of our culture. Uh, another Example. So what I say is, it's not that black folk don't, or Latino folk don't, or indigenous, right? But how do we, and what are the images? So 
When you look up black anglers in Madison, here's the picture that you get. And you, I don't know if you can see, but it's not a brown face among us, right? <laughs> Literally. So my friend just wrote a book on the algorithms that are used uh, by Google to create what you see. And so I type literally in black anglers and not a brown. But if you were anywhere over by Lakeside, you see lots and lots, and there's a history of black folks, so where is that scholarship? So if anybody knows Principal Dugas, uh, he's a friend of mine, and he posted this picture. I'm like, dude, I got to use your picture in my presentation, because it isn't just that we did it in the past, it's that we're doing it in the future. We have to change the frame with which we use to articulate the work of communities of color. So if you say black folk don't, I'm going to push back and say we do, but are you involved in those organizations? Are you speaking those languages? Are you really looking for the ways that people do this? Now, I was stopped at a light. This was a safe picture. This was out of my window. But I just wanted to contrast the Google search with the images that you see when you're driving. This traffic was all backed up. It was when the flood and so everybody's sitting there and can't get through the beeline for hours. So this isn't the only person. This gentleman allowed me to take a picture and I asked him some questions. He has a fish finder on his operation. Now many people say that black folk fish because they need it, uh, because they're impoverished or they need it as a food source. And while some of that may be true, that's not the only narrative. It isn't just a deficit model. It isn't just that black folk don't have access to food security and food sovereignty. It is that some folks do it, and there's a historical tradition. So what you see in the shore fisher, you see black folk, you see women, you see generations, and I want us to tap into the ways that we do fill in the blank. There are other ways that African Americans are engaging in the environment. Our organization, we're teaching children how to do soil samples. Here's Batman on his time off, just sort of doing, <laughs> right? Here are other examples, beautiful babies that are involved in the environment. So I push back against saying we don't do X, but we do in different kinds of ways. And the urban ag movement is a way to, it's often a segue. So when folks are asking the question about how healthy is our food, we then ask questions of how healthy is our soil, how healthy is our water, and then we begin to engage in different kinds of ways. This is a group from Detroit um, who started uh, in, you know, doing these camping trips and you know, really just sort of saying, okay, I'm growing my own food, but what are the other ways that the soil can heal us? Our cities need to be healed, our people need to be healed, and we do this in, as, with the earth as an ally, and she will also heal us. Here's a beautiful example. We have the Food Warriors Youth Development Program. This is on our farm. And so my overall argument is that in, by, in, in, in reconnecting or just challenging the conversation around whether or not black folk do, but um, also thinking that it's important for our babies to have spaces and places where their imagination can run free. And then the answer to this is, don't our babies deserve to be superheroes? have a few pieces. If you want interested in uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, I published an article on her work, A Pig in a Garden. She said, as long as I have a pig in a garden, no one can ever tell me what to do. Uh, my book, Freedom Farmers, Agricultural Resistance in the Black Freedom Movement, is coming out next month through the University of North Carolina Press. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, just finished up a USDA grant, an AFRI grant, $4 million five-year grant on food access in Michigan, where I did focus groups with um, several black and Latinx uh, Latino farmers, but also over 200 farmers in Michigan, which people don't think Michigan has farmers for some strange reason. That scholarship is missing. And also, I have a quarterly column in the Journal of Agriculture, Food Systems, and Community Development entitled Freedom's Seeds, Reflections of Food, Race, and Community Development. Thank you. Boy, can I put a panel together or what? <laughs> um, and as it happens, we're running um, short on time. We've got a, a time for at least a, one question, maybe two. Um, and I'm going to try to pick the one that will um, hopefully give us the best amount of context with what we've been talking about. Um, and, I'm, uh, and I'll start with this question from, a, um, from someone in the audience. Can you give some good examples of how nonprofit environmental con uh, conservation groups are partnering with communities of color uh, to conserve our air, land, and water. Um, we've got a couple of minutes if we can just go to the panel and have you give me some examples of some of the organizations that you might be familiar with or working with that um, help to um, provide us with better access to nature. I can talk about sustained aid, which is <laughs> what I do go and right ahead, uh, my, my job currently. Um, 
So I think it comes from the the value and the knowledge that people resist and communities resist, and that there is this resilience force, and that there is an acknowledgement of what Monica was saying is that we do, we just need to for everybody to figure out how we do that. And um, that's the assumption that we're coming from. So in the work that we do, we definitely partner with community organizations, with Centro Hispano, with the Hmong community, with the African-American community in Madison. And we, we, um, we don't create necessarily new things because we know that those things already exist. So what we do is we, um, we partner with them, we partner with Ho-Chunk, we learn from them. We know that they're doing um, the rights of nature. So what can we learn from what you have been doing for decades so we can support your, your struggle but also the things that you care about? Um, so in that process, um, one of the issues that happens, particularly in this region, is that we have so many NGOs doing similar things, and we're all trying to compete for the same resources. Um, and probably we are taking the space of communities of color that are already doing this job. Um, so what we do is like, let's hear from you, let's educate ourselves, and in what way can we help your, your resistance? In what ways can we help? The, the, in what ways can we um, bring you to the table so we can learn from your, from your resilience and from the innovative ways that you are uh, protecting the environment that, we, that you are uh, bringing food, uh, healthy food to the table? So in that way, we're bringing those stories to policy to those that are in power so we can, and, we, and we're training those people so they can be in power too, because that's the other issue. We, we can't um, take second place anymore. We need to be in those spaces so we can shape the policies that are affecting us. So that's one of the ways that we are uh, sustaining our work towards that goal. Great. Um, I think I would just, uh, Kind of piggyback off of that, and and also add that you know you should never underestimate the the power of grassroots movements, right? Mm -hmm. And when we were in any environmental battle that we've ever been in, that's always been you know the kind of the epicenter of those movements is our own community members partnering with other local people, other local you know nonprofit organizations that are just same like-minded people that all care about the environment, care about the water, care about everything that, you know, we've been given. And so, you know, organizations like, you know, even like uh, some of you might have heard of Winona LaDuke and Honor the Earth and um, the Wisconsin Wildlife um, Federation and other grassroots organizations that have really stepped up to, you know, say, hey, you know, this this isn't right. We need to look at this. We need to take a step back and and address some of these things. So, you know, tribes have, have a pretty long long history of partnering with a lot of these types of organizations, and there's always ways to get involved. Um, I also say, too, the tribes, for the most part, you know, they, they band together. It's kind of, I gave this analogy the other day, it's kind of like, you know, a bigger kid out in the playground picks on a smaller kid, and then all of a sudden the whole, you know, kindergarten comes and shows up, and they're like, <laughs> you know, what's up, you know? So a lot of, <laughs> lot of tribal communities band together when these types of... Uh, environmental battles come about too. I'm assuming that because we're all here, we have um, uh, the desire to engage um, with communities of color. And so my question to you would be, not necessarily how do you get communities of color to engage and interact with your organizations, but how do you go and identify communities of color that are doing this work and find ways to be supportive of their work? See, what happens often is you shape the frame, the conversation, you have a meeting and then wonder why nobody comes, opposed to seeing where and how people do what we do and the ways that we can also be supportive. And so I'm sure that there are lots of collaborations that are occurring and I think that we absolutely need to have more of that happening, but we also have to um, reserve the, 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 the intention around making sure that everybody speaks our language and that everybody's goal is the same after we've set the agenda. And so I think it's important for us to not be, feel like we have to be in control, not feel like we can have to suck up all the air out of the room, but that we allow ourselves to not be in the lead, not be uh, the ones who set the tone, and to engage in communities more respectfully. Thank you.
Well, I'm just going to uh, make one final announcement, and thank you everyone for coming today. Um, I have the uh, privilege with the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies to host um, a free lecture series on October 30th and November 1st uh, featuring a literary scholar and um, mentor of mine, Eddie Harris. Um, it's a fabulous narrative about his experiences um, paddling a canoe from Lake Itasca, Minnesota to the Gulf of Mexico to New Orleans. Um, he's the author of the book Mississippi Solo and will be featuring his film River to the Heart. So um, it's a free event. Um, check the, um, the University of Wisconsin-Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies website for details and we look forward to seeing you there to have another great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Live from Cap Time's Idea Fest. You can subscribe to this show on iTunes or anywhere else you find podcasts. If you like it, please give us a rating or a review. We'd appreciate it. We're also releasing audio from the fest on some of our other podcasts here at the Cap Times. Shows like The Corner Table, The Mad Splainers, and Cap Times Talks. Be sure to give those a listen. I'm Eric Lawrenson, and thanks again for tuning in. 